Welcome everyone to another Our Experience podcast, an ASCP podcast. Today, your co-host, Tom Hansel and Chad Wurst are gonna talk about another pillar of the industry. You know, industry leaders come in all shapes and sizes, and they engage us from all points of the landscape of older adult medicine. But like a fine wine, most fit the description of where they came from. Some come from academia, some from government, clinical, or operations. Some even specialize further by the settings in their community, assisted living, or in skilled nursing. Well, Nikki Brandt, well, she's a little bit different because she does it all. She is, of course, from an academic background, but she's also a practicing pharmacist as she leads a geriatric medicine center. But at the same time, she still engages in policy, formerly working with CMS. Well, her perspective of life, liberty, and the pursuit of pharmacy definitely shouldn't be missed. So with that said, Nikki, welcome to the podcast, and please give us a background about yourself. Thank you, Tom. Well, first and foremost, I just want to thank ASCP for this opportunity. As many of you know, this has been my professional home, which I think speaks to a little bit about my background. Uh, so in terms of my ASCP journey, um, I've had the fortune of working very closely early on when I was a student in Maryland with our state chapter of ASCP. And so as I developed into a professional, they've always been supportive with uh, programs, with education, and with training opportunities, and then went on to be the president with our state chapter, and then eventually the president of ASCP. And I say that because it's been longitudinal, and I think we've grown together. So like many that might be listening to this, I was trained as a pharmacist. I went back to do my MBA in healthcare management. Um, and I've always kept uh, the older adult in the center of anything I've done, whether it's been practice, whether it's been policy, whether it's been our educational initiatives, as well as uh, the work that really drives me, which is the person-centered care that I do within our um, integrated practice setting. So yeah, so that's a little bit about me. I mean, there's lots I could share. I love football, don't love the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, a Buffalo Bills fan, because I'm from Western New York. And uh, yeah, and I love pharmacy, but I also love the pursuit of other things too. So yeah, I try to stay balanced. Well, we apologize for Tom Sherb. <laughs> that's I okay. The I don't football and I'm... we have to tolerate this, I guess, but. <laughs> well, there, we're in football. I just want to be on record, I apologize. No worries, Chad. I totally get it. I think you're from Cincinnati. We have a shared uh, yeah. passion for football teams along yes. the lake. Yeah. Yes. And dislike a, of yeah, Pittsburgh. The Bills and the Bengals have kind of a love affair with each other for a variety of reasons, not notwithstanding last year's uh, DeMar Hamlin event. So um, we talked about it, it on you wrote podcast. A, you have, and the blog yeah. was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was oh. there. Um well, let's talk about your career because you are somebody that has a unique perspective, somebody that is, you know, well focused on senior care pharmacy and working with older adults. Um, I met you way back in, I think, 2005. You were doing some work with CMS. Um, and talk about that and what that was. And then talk about how that has helped shape all the other things that you've done, whether it's practice, academia, or policy, because that's so important to understand the inner workings of CMS, and that's something that most people don't get to experience. Yeah, so just for maybe some of our younger listening members to this, um, 
never closed the door. And so when I was exploring, you know, I say about every five years, you kind of get this what's next kind of approach to where you want to go with your career and experiences. So um, at that time, I had been practicing in the VA setting, um, doing some work in the community. And we knew that there was a lot going on with the Medicare Part D kind of coming to fruition and opportunities. So I was looking over at CMS for opportunities potentially within Medicare and the evolving Part D plan, but also um, looking at opportunities uh, in long-term care where I had worked and, and had experience uh, with my caring for older adults for my clinical. So that day, I had met with some different individuals at CMS and decided to take uh, what we call a mini sabbatical in the world of academia, um, doing an intergovernmental uh, act exchange of time. So I, I shared my time 50-50. I always joke because it was never 50-50, um, but it was more like a 75-75, which is not that uncommon when people are in multiple jobs, but it was amazing. And what it taught me, just like you are alluding to, Chad, it taught me like the what happens behind the scenes. Like, where does your public comment go to? How does your public comment inform what we do in terms of regulation? Why it's so important that your voice, written and verbal during these testimonials, is so important. And that we as a public agency, um, and of course, Medicare being the biggest funder of healthcare, um, it really helped to illuminate why we need to have that active voice. It also gave me this amazing opportunity to see the landscape of all the different organizations within the geriatric space. So working with ASCP, working with AMDA, working with the nursing home, um, different organizations, being part of these campaigns to improve the quality of care. Because at that time, it was even before the whole movement of 2012 with the antipsychotic reduction. So I got to learn about FTAGs, the state operations manual, language we never learned in pharmacy school, by the way, you know, and so I was like, when, and I got to give a small story. So I'm a Catholic girl from Western New York. And so when they walk into CMS and they said, we're going to talk about the Psalm. And I'm like, oh God, am I back in church? So anyways, the Psalm was the state operations manual. And they just like F tags. I'm like, what do you mean by F tag? You know? And I was like, does that stand for federal? Like, no, there's really no abbreviation. And then it's accompanied by all this interpretive guidance, which they called the IGs. So I just had to pause because there was so much lingo getting thrown at you besides all the organizations. So I learned the language, right? When you're in an environment like that, you have to learn the language. I always joke because when you're writing regulations, there's a distinction between a should and a must. And those are nuances that we as practitioners have to pay attention to. And then the most important thing, in addition to those just very important things, is understanding, like when you're not sure, having someone explain it to you um, in terms of what the regulations might mean to them. And that's where that interpretive guidance and the surveyor education and training. Got to get a lens into the surveyor training aspect of it and the, you know, the qualifications of the surveyors. So all of that packaged together over a series of really like three and a half years inform me in so many ways. And I was joking, as you heard before we came on, you know, when the first changes to the FTAGs came out was about the same time I had our um, second child in, in 2006. I always remember that date. Um, but I knew at that time that 
what was happening in healthcare, especially with all that was happening with Medicare and reimbursement, is that I felt like I had to go back to school. So, um, so that led me to going to do my MBA in healthcare management because healthcare is really a business. So I kept my affiliations with CMS, um, continued my work um, serving with them as a consultant and had our second child, which took a little bit of a little extra, and then eventually went back uh, to go do my MBA in healthcare management. Most people, I'll just joke, and this is a shout out to balancing life and the pursuit of pharmacy in your profession, is most people, it takes two years to do your master's in business administration. It took me six years, and um, because I was doing it being a mom and raising two kids, um, with my husband, of course, um, but you know we won't go there. So this is a podcast for the public viewing. So, you know, women, we, we balance a lot. So it was awesome. And that taught me the importance of listening more and talking less, but also gave the credentials for when you walked into that room to manage contracts, to manage agreements, um, and the work to give you that kind of confidence as well. And it gave you a whole nother set of language and skills. Um, and that has really helped as then I um, took on leadership, obviously, with ASCP and then leadership within the LAMI Center. So, um, so yeah, so CMS was really kind of, for me, one of those doors that opened that really opened so many experiences um, that I continue to give back. And then I went back and did some more work with them in 2012 to launch the antipsychotic work, which we just, you know, published some papers about in terms of public policy. So what I learned there as well is the importance of evidence and how really as an academician, as Tom was talking about at the beginning when you wear multiple hats, you're as an academician can help inform public policy by good research. So learn my strengths, learn my weaknesses. I am not a quantitative research analysis. I'm not a PhD, but I know some really smart ones who know that design and we work with them to ask meaningful questions. And I think that's what's really important is understanding what you want to impact and who you work with to get there. So hopefully that helped. Oh, that's great. I think um, you know it's a it's a good answer for that part of what you've done in your career. Mm -hmm. You've done so many different things, and just to recognize the complexities around that one aspect as it dovetails into the, all of these other things that you touch, whether that's research, again, whether that's your work at Lamy Center or it's your practice. Um, I think that you know, to me, it shows somebody that's really invested in not only healthcare for older adults, but in pharmacy in particular. You're a pharmacist and you're trying to use that instrument, that degree and that profession to drive your goals in healthcare. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's, it's amazing to watch. It's amazing um, that you've been a part of ASCP and, and the things that you do. But as a pharmacist, it's a good example of, I mean, there's a lot of career opportunities. I, I know mm -hmm. that I picked pharmacy for all the wrong reason. Um, came up in a small town. It was like, you could go to the army or be a coal miner or be a farmer. And I'm like, hey, that guy that's in the air condition counting pills, that seems like a great job. And mm -hmm. so that's why I picked pharmacy in my secluded little world. Of course, I got out and I started dispensing drugs and thought, I hate this. I don't want anything to do with this. And fortunately for me, I found long-term care and I fell in love with it. But this is a, a, a prime example of how you know, man or woman has so many versatilities. If they get that mm -hmm. degree in health healthcare, if they enjoy government, if they enjoy policy making, if they enjoy operations or, or clinician or whatever, pharmacy really has a, a plethora of opportunities for you. And you're your prime example of that. 
Well, thanks. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think the important thing is to seek out opportunities and experiences. And I think, you know, when I've thought about pharmacy and pharmacists. So uh, back where I grew up, my uh, cousin owned a pharmacy. And she, to this day, has been entrepreneurial in her experiences to expand what she does to meet the needs of the community. And I think that was embedded in me at a very young age um, as a teenager and those exposures to how you can have such a lasting impact. And I think our profession, like many healthcare professions, need to continue to ensure that we're meeting the public's needs, right? And I think the pandemic should reaffirm for every pharmacist the importance of their role and the importance of their role across all care settings, um, whether it be the community, the nursing home, the hospital. And I think that's really pivotal. And I think the other thing is their voice in terms of changing what they do. And that could be locally, that could be statewide and other forums. And there's something to be said about taking that on um, and being uh, thinking outside the box. And I think pharmacy has that opportunity. And I know within our programs here at the University of Maryland, you know, we coined the term pharmapreneurism, but it really is um, that a lot of what pharmacists have done has been thinking beyond. And we have a current program going on right now where just a shout out to our independent pharmacists. We know that there's been a lot of things that have happened, which has impacted their reimbursement, but they're so vital, especially to our older, older adults and providing services that matter. And I know, Chad, we know a lot about what matters to older adults and aligning that with um, services that are meaningful. And I think it's just to think about that so we don't lose lose sight of that. So I know when we've done work with our community partners, we try to work with those pharmacies that are really helping meet the needs of older adults. So I think that's a good segue. So, you know, we haven't dug in deeply to the Lamy Center and some of the research aspects of what you do. I think we should come back to that. but. Let's ask the question now, where do you see the profession moving in the next three to five years, taking into account this rich history that you have across these different sectors of healthcare? Where do you see it? It seems like you always make really good decisions about, I'm gonna do this research, I'm gonna do these things in clinic. And you're, you're in some ways ahead of the game, but you're also sort of predicting and, and like forecasting where, this, where these things are going. So how, how do you see it? Where do you, where do you see this happening over the next three to five years for pharmacists? Oh boy, that's a fun question. Well, predictive modeling, well, both of us know that the population is growing older. We know that there's a diminishing number of beds uh, for long-term care beds. We need to wrap around services that help people age in place. As I shared with the two of you, we've been doing this program where we're going to public housing and providing services that matter to help people age in place. And it's just been a huge groundswell. We're doing vaccines, we're doing podiatry, air cleaning, blood pressure checks. We've, you know, we're going into people's homes. We need to do more of that. We need to advocate for the reimbursement of those services. This isn't new. One of my mentors, and I'll do a shout out because he's no longer with us, Mayor Handelman, he always said, hey, Nick, he said, you know, what we do in nursing homes, we got to do everywhere. And, and that's been a motto with me for 25 years. And, you know, and it's just kind of chipping away at the iceberg, right? It's going to happen. And we need to create the groundswell of our older adults' voices. It's not about the pharmacist. It's about the older adult. 
we're all going to get there one day. And we want to have services that help us to do what we want to do best and optimize it. We did a program today in our community, and I said, what matters to you? And there's same things that matters to all of us, but how do we help these older adults have that? But there, you know, and I think that's what's important. So when I think about it, you know, artificial intelligence and risk-driven protocols, that's lovely. It helps to make our life a little easier, who we should focus our efforts on. But at the end of the day, we need to align services in a meaningful way and sustain them. And pharmacists need to be part of that equation. And so, um, so the presence, the advocacy is so important. And we need to embrace technology. I mean, mm. I think we talked about it at our regional meeting. It was great to hear using wearables, right? You know, and making it something that's uh, simpler for our whole healthcare team. So how do we incorporate that into our workflow? And um, so I think we can't run away from it. We need to embrace it. We need to put it in our workflow. We need to integrate it. Um, and I think there just needs to be more alignment with how we provide a service, how we define the service, how do we pay for the service, how do we measure the service. So to your point, Chad and, and Tom, you know, I, I'm lucky because I, I get to see sometimes mm -hmm. more of a landscape than someone who's just providing day-to-day -day services, patient care, which is so important because I do that. And I say to myself, wow, I don't know how someone does this every day. And I love it because it fulfills my heart. But then I take a step back and I say, there's so many things that we need to bring up top and say, you know, this isn't a meaningful measure or this isn't a good way to look at it. So mm -hmm. I think that's where we need to go. So the three to five years, Chad, is there's a rapidly growing patient, older patient population, more and more drugs are coming to market. A lot of attention in terms of both the containing the cost of care so we don't liquidate, you know, the, the trust fund and other types of things um, to maintain the, the resources that are needed. But I think we need to think about how pharmacists fit into that resource equation. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love yeah. I love that you said that, especially on the technology piece. And you know, I've got some some technology and automation background, and I'd go to pharmacies, and and part of that fear was, you know, well, we don't want to displace pharmacists, we don't want to displace technicians, and and I certainly understand that we don't want to you know chase our friends out, out of the or employees out of the out of the marketplace. But it's also short-sighted. Technology's mm -hmm. coming. Your competitors are using it. They're using it mm -hmm. for an advantage. They're going to have better efficiencies. They're going to have better revenues. And then they're going to be able to free up staff to be able to do even more than you're able to do. And so I appreciate it, especially when it comes to AI. You know, AI is going to take mm -hmm. over the world and, and control us and that kind of stuff. Well, there's there's going to be two types of people. There's going to be the people that, that embrace it and use it to their advantage. There's going to be people that run from it. And you know, mm -hmm. it's 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 almost like saying, I don't know about that internet thing. I don't want to use that. That's a little scary. <laughs> well, you know, you can yeah. use it for your advantage, or you can you can you can run from it. And so, I love what mm -hmm. you said about about that approach. I certainly believe the same way. Thanks, Tom. And and, and I speak to that because we did this study on you know automated dispensing systems way back before they were like a thing in the regulation, and people were like, oh, I don't know. To your point, that it's going to replace people, but you know. It's not just about, it, it's not a product, it's a service, right? And so automation is going to replace that product, but to think about the, the service, the humanistic service that can't be just one approach that fits for everybody, especially older adults. Yeah. No, I think that's the, I think that's probably the, the biggest key is that aspect mm -hmm. of it. It's not one service. I remember, you know, it wasn't five years ago that Amazon was taking over pharmacy. And before mm -hmm. that, 
mail order was taking over pharmacy. It's always sort of the big bad, bad wolf out there is coming to get us. AI is the new version. AI is going mm -hmm. to take over pharmacy. And the reality is we, we have to have different levels of service and different offerings to deal with the different groups of people, even within the older adult age group. Um, we're, we're at a point in this country where we were sort of trending toward a have-have-nots environment. You know, if you're wealthy, you can buy yourself into a nice assisted living facility and get good nursing services. You might be able to hire a personal nurse to take care of you at your home. Um, if you're not wealthy, you're probably going to end up in a skilled nursing facility. But there's this giant middle. And this giant middle is how do we apply the, the right services to these individuals so that they can age in place, they can stay at home if they want, they can't afford a private duty nurse, but they can't mm -hmm. afford or their insurance can afford some of these services that might allow them to age more gracefully and not progress into different levels of care. Um, and I think that's what most people miss is there is no, mailer is great for some people. You know, mm -hmm. AI is gonna be great to help us with some of our tasks. But it's not mm -hmm. the answer. The answer is still yeah. going to be a very patient-centric approach. And it's still going to revolve around what kind of relationship do you have with that person? And what mm -hmm. kind of relationship do you need with that person so that you're providing them the best opportunities? Um, and okay. I think we lose that sometimes. I've talked about this before. You know, relationships still has to be the center of everything we do. It's still you and a patient and your understanding of that patient and their understanding of their situation that guides the best medication management. Uh, without mm -hmm. that, we're throwing spaghetti at the wall. You know, we oh, hope this yeah. once a week uh, injection will work for you. We, don't, we have no idea if it will, um, but here it is. I hope it works versus, mm -hmm. hey, this is a person that needs once a week that will be able to manage that when they, they'll take it before they go to church on Sunday. And suddenly you've taken somebody off a complex regimen that wasn't working and putting them on something simple. That's just one example. I'm not trying to advocate for that type of drug, mm -hmm. but the reality is because you know that person, you're able to apply the right medications and, and right plan for them. And we struggle with that. I think every everything, like insurance companies, they work against us because they want everybody to fit into a mold. And here's the generic that we have. Sorry if it doesn't work for this patient because they have a certain metabolic profile. Mm -hmm. This is the one. We've dealt with that. We can, we're going to continue to deal with that. In some ways, it's going to become more more um, obvious that we have to have a much more pa patient-centered, individualistic approach. Um, and pharmacists are positioned well to do that. Mm -hmm. No, I think, and it's, you hit on so many things in that comment, but, you know, it's the trust, right? And we need to have that kind of trust. I think people are losing trust um, if, for, in healthcare providers and the healthcare system. So how do we reestablish that trust and strengthen that relationship? And so I, you know, sad and maybe we weren't the most trusted profession like we used to be, but I think we still have such a critical role in terms of that relationship and trust. And it's, it's trust with the patients, but it's also trust with the provider system, right? And so you need to have good communication to navigate who those other providers are. And it's really impressed me. I've worked on so many various interprofessional teams with physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, social work, and others, you know, and the importance of, again, grounding in, in that person approach, but also communicating and, and saying, hey, what, you know, what are your thoughts? What can we do? What can we do different? And they're always open to understanding like that perspective of what really is the safest and most effective and cost effective. We have to be mindful of cost effective for our older adults. Um, so, cause we, we get evaluated in so many different ways. So yeah, so I think that's a really good point.
So, uh, Nikki, I want you to yeah. put on your, your genie hat and, and predict, oh, predict the future hat. here. Sure. Um, now we already we already know we already can predict predict that the Steelers are going to win the next Super Bowl, so that's a that's uh, a given. Um, seriously, however, do we have to go there, Tom? Tom? <laughs> when it comes, when we it talked comes about to this. Pharmacy, <laughs> when it comes when it comes to pharmacy, uh, hey, uh -huh. I got I got to dream big. When it comes to pharmacy, you know, grant me three yeah. wishes. Put on your genie hat. Give me three wishes. If there's three major policy changes, three major things that can happen, being right there in, in the Beltway, what what would be those? They if you could wave your magic wand and say, these things have to happen, or if these things happen, it'll significantly change our industry. Oh, my first is my dream, I think, since I became a pharmacist, is that we have provider status, right? Um, I know through Medicare, generally, right? People, we do have provider status, but provider status through the feds, so we wouldn't have to deal with some of these nuances with incident two and other things. So I would mm -hmm. like pharmacists to be written in the regulations. It gets back to what happened back in the 60s, right? So if I could change that, that would be probably the first one. The other thing is making healthcare affordable and not causing this, you know, I've been very, um, mindful, and I'll be purposeful in this comment, you know, I'm not saying we have to have a single payer model, but we have to have a little bit more consistent in our payer system. It is, we know that October 15th is coming up with Medicare Part D. It is daunting for people to navigate a Medicare Advantage, a Medicare Part D plan, and what's the best that works for them. And I just feel, and then, <laughs> all right, ooh, this is gonna get recorded. We got to take out the middlemen. We're driving up drug costs and pricing because there's too many hands in the pot. And, you know, I used to work at a VA setting and the cost we could get meds for for our veterans, so much more affordable than we can <laughs> for our individuals in the community. So that would be like if I had those dreams, those are huge. Um, but that's where I would go. Um, and so you can see my MBA hats coming out because money drives the quality of care and access mm -hmm. to care. And, and I think we need to really take a step back um, in terms of how we're doing this. And I, I would also like to get rid of, I can have a couple more wishes, Jeannie. I know I only got three, <laughs> but I, I just think we need to take a step back. And, you know, I'm, I'm all about metrics, but also being mindful of measures that matter. And, you know, I, I feel sometimes there's issues that are happening that we're getting penalized because we're not getting an A1C less than seven when it doesn't make sense for that person. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, so I think we just need to be mindful of some of the measures that we use and how do we need to evolve them? How do we need to retire them? How do we need to advance them in terms of them being meaningful to what matters to patients? So that's a sidebar, but I gave you my three. Wonderful. Thank See, you. You guys, you guys get to react. What are your thoughts? I mean, m my reaction is similar. I think there has to be some better solution. And I agree with you. I don't think the answer is single payer system, but maybe there are certain things that are paid more centrally and more consistent. Um, and we find other ways to deal with uh, people that have advanced conditions or um, uh, need specialists and things like that. Cause we don't do a good job of primary care in the current system that we have. It, at least from a from a equity standpoint, we don't do a good job. Um, again, I think if you're wealthy, you, you, you have access to good primary care. Um, if you're not wealthy, you don't. Um, and I think that that, that b becomes the basis for changing the cost model because prevention is the answer to get out of 
where we are. And it starts mm -hmm. on the primary care side, whether that, you know, whether that is in a, a traditional primary care physician's office or if it's in some model that involves a clinic and a pharmacy. I mean, there's got to be some answer on the front end that keeps people well longer or healthier that then mm -hmm. helps us control the cost on the back end. Um, yeah. I don't have the answer either. I wish I did. I'm sure Tom does. <laughs> uh, Tom's fan. our operations man. Yeah. Tom, you're smiling. You're the genie. <laughs> I'm the genie. Just rub, rub my head. No, I mean, I mean, that's spot on. I mean, I, yeah, the provider status is something that, you know, it almost seems like a, a, a childish wish, but yet it's, it's realistic. And I, and I think from the, from the vaccine experience we've had the last couple of years, pharmacists really proved nationwide. This is, this is a no brainer as the population does age in place. And there's going to be a lot of seniors in rural settings that cannot get to the hospital, cannot get to that primary mm -hmm. care physician or whatever. And so, you know, it, if the government would sit down and say, Hey, let's, let's really kind of look at where we're headed, not in 20 years, where we're headed in three years and five years, mm -hmm. you know, that, that population is going to be at its peak and in 2030, it's 73 million geriatric population, mm -hmm. but they don't, don't all disappear 2031. That's just the mm -hmm. peak of the growth. You're still got wow. decades of, of these seniors being there, and, and, and there's a chance of vulnerability that they're not going to get taken care of. So allowing pharmacists to be able to prescribe basic things and to be a provider status. You know, I know in, 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 in England, for example, pharmacists can already provide prescriptions for basic sinus and infections and UTIs and birth mm -hmm. controls. And it's just a no brainer, not to mention that we're going to have a shortage in primary care physicians as well. And so Correct. people are going to be lining up trying to get basic sinus infections and, and those type of things taken care of. And it, it's just not sustainable. So I, I think that, that that would be number one on my, my genie wish list as well. Fantastic. No, I, I, I just having traveled in Europe, it, we had an incident and I was able to, as a pharmacist, get access to medicines. So it was so impressive, um, but we don't have that same kind of ability here. All right. So I'll, I'll ask a good wrap up question, which is going to be impossible, sure. I think, to answer, but I'm going to do it anyway. So oh, thanks, what, is the, what is the one thing that you're doing right now that you are super excited about? Oh, as specifically super. as possible. <laughs> other, other than this podcast, of course. I know. All company excluded. I have to say, um, oh my God, that's a tough one. All right. Uh, for me, I love, um, you guys know, being on the cusp of movements. So I felt very fortunate with Medicare to be inside then external, helping out with the antipsychotic stuff in nursing homes with culture change in terms of behavioral health needs. And I would have to say right now, a shout out to my work um, as a faculty and advisor with the Age Friendly Health System Movement. So um, I've been able to coach health systems here in the United States, um, get at the four M's, what matters to older adults, medications, mentation, and mobility. I've seen how movement can align health systems with uh, policy implication in terms of some of the measures and the payment and the way we look at it, as well as with educational initiatives. The fascinating thing about this is I started when there was five health systems here in the United States. Now there's over 3,300 health systems in the United States. There's multiple countries involved, and I've had the true honor and pleasure to work with 
individuals in Europe, individuals in Australia, and most recently, individuals um, and health systems in the Middle East. What resonates for me and where my recent passion is, is global health. And we know that there's around the world, some of the same similarities um, happening in terms of the aging population. You know, there's the new Netflix Blue Zones. My son's like, mom, when are you gonna watch it? So, I, but I think we need to learn from each other and that exchange both in the healthcare systems, but in terms of the work that needs to be done. So that's been part of my passion most recently is that age-friendly movement. Um, and I look forward to, I think I probably shared this chat with you, but others, um, you know, we've been working with the University of Helsinki and I'm looking forward to doing my Fulbright.